Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. I'm John Severs and I'm joined as ever by Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Good morning. And Gwanya Hallahan. Hello. Who celebrated her anniversary, Tez anniversary this week. I did. Oh, it was emotional. For the people who don't know, Gwanya was a teacher. I plucked her out of teaching worsening the recruitment crisis in in education and she came and worked for us and has been a star ever since and um if i do say so myself an excellent piece of recruitment um Mm. but enough about me uh we'll get on with the uh podcast and this week we are talking about the 12th of march edition okay so first up um it's a, it's it shouldn't be a controversial topic perhaps but it but it is uh, uh it's vaccinations uh more to the point well initially more to the point covid-19 vaccinations and we asked john morgan to uh, who's a very very good journalist who works for us very often um to look at the problems well potential problems around vaccinations and schools so at the moment children aren't being vaccinated but there's a strong push for them to for the trials to happen and for those children all children to be vaccinated and you know the scientists are saying the best place for that to happen would be in school you also have over the next few months more and more of the teaching age group vaccinated and more and more of the parent age group vaccinated particularly you know as those age groups drop you're going to go down into primary so we we sort of set john a hypothetical task okay what happens in a school at the at the junction of where people start refusing those vaccines whether it's a teacher a parent or or a parent for their child how as a head teacher do you negotiate a situation where a child uh, may a, a parent may stop a child coming into school because a parent has a teacher hasn't been vaccinated or one parent won't let a child come in because another parent hasn't been vaccinated and how how transparent will that lack of vaccination be so john takes quite a deep dive into um what is commonly called the anti-vax movement movement but we learn in this piece that that's not a term we should be using um, about people who refuse a vaccine because there's such a myriad uh, group of reasons why people would refuse a vaccine. So essentially, it looks a bit, you know, it's a bit future gazing and says, okay, down the line, what potential problems are going to come up for schools around vaccinations and how might they tackle those? Um, before we dive into a little discussion about that, uh, you caught up with a virologist turned teacher turned Tez. COVID-19 expert, didn't you, Gronya? I did. So for somebody that's come out of the teaching pool, we've replaced her with Chatel, who has gone into teaching from a different industry. And she is a wealth of knowledge. I love talking to her. She makes the science make sense to me. And I caught up with her about vaccinations. And you can hear that now. Thank you, Chatel, for joining us today. You're very welcome. So we should probably begin at the beginning and with the basics, shouldn't we? Because biology GCSE is a long, long, long way away for most teachers. So if I start with what what does a vaccine do? Sounds like a good starting point. And um, so essentially vaccines um, train your immune system to recognise a pathogen, which is a virus or a bacteria that can cause a disease. Um, and it trains it to recognise it, and it does this by using harmless versions um, of that particular bacteria or virus. Um, and this then activates an immune response, 
such as antibodies or specific groups of cells that can retain memory, for example, so that when you do encounter, or if you were to encounter that pathogen, so the virus or the bacteria in future, the actual thing, um, you would mount a really quick immune response against it. Um, and that would fight off any uh, the infection and prevent you from having a potentially severe disease. A question that a lot of people are worried about is this question of safety. So are the COVID-19 vaccines that have been approved for use in the UK safe? That's a really good question. So there are currently three uh, COVID-19 vaccines approved for use in the UK. Um, And I think the most important thing to mention here is that there is no such thing as a 100% safe medication or vaccine. They don't exist. So that sort of 100% uh, safety needs to be sort of moved to the side of it. However, having said that, compared to, say, medication, vaccines undergo really rigorous testing. Um, And this is because they are given to healthy volunteers in clinical trials compared to medicines, for example. And so for this reason, the level, the tolerance of acceptable risk is really, really low. Um, So I would say that the benefit for this reason, the benefit of having the vaccine far, far outweighs the risk that you would put yourself in if you were to, for example, become infected with the pathogen and get disease. Anybody who's been following the news or has been reading online about people's questions about the vaccine would come across this issue. The idea that the vaccine has been rushed. I think we all felt overjoyed when we heard the news the vaccine was out, but some people were saying this is too quick, this is too soon. Could you explain? what your thoughts are on this? Yeah, I mean, I can understand how people feel about this. Um, however, I don't think I would use, actually, I wouldn't use the word rushed at all. I would prefer to say it was efficient and extremely streamlined. Um, and actually, that's a positive. It's a credit to the scientific community um, because they've managed to achieve something that was unimaginable, to be honest. Um, so, Firstly, it's important to highlight that all of the standard safety protocols and clinical trials that any medication or vaccine goes through in the UK before it's approved, COVID-19 vaccines have also been through all of those tests and trials. So those boxes have been ticked. Um, However, moving on from that, there are some things, some stages that were different to traditional vaccination timelines. So, for example, research and development, this could take years for other vaccines. Um, For COVID-19, because researchers were informed by previous coronavirus infections, like SARS and MERS, for example, that timeline was squashed, so to speak. Um, Funding, for example, this could be quite tricky to get for vaccines. However, due to the emergency state that we found ourselves in, the government and funding bodies approved vaccine development immediately. Um, It can be really hard, for example, to find volunteers for clinical trials. But again, because of the pandemic, thousands of volunteers signed up for clinical trials when they were happening. Um, And most importantly, manufacturing of vaccines and their scaling up of their production. That typically happens in a sort of consecutive fashion. So one stage is completed, then the next, and then the next. However, in the case of COVID-19 vaccines, these happened in parallel. So while the other stages were being completed, vaccine manufacturing had already started, so to speak. And that essentially made the process more efficient and streamlined. Okay, so my next question is something that we we hear a lot when we we talk about vaccinations, is this idea that vaccinations can cause autism. Could you explain a little bit about about what the 
the theories about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'd like to start off by saying there is no evidence that vaccines cause autism. So putting that out there straight away. However, there was a study uh, published. So this is where the fear, I think, stemmed from. There was a, pu- a study published in 1998, I'd like to say, um, and it proposed or suggested that there was a link between the NMR vaccine and autism. Uh, so as you do within the scientific community, this hypothesis was tested by several groups and nobody was able to reproduce those results. Um, and so for that reason, um, the paper was discredited and it was retracted. So it was, it was taken back. Um, and the physician had his license, his medical license revoked as well. Um, and there were also some undisclosed uh, financial conflicts of interest there between the physician and the suggestion of, of the link between vaccines and autism too. So for that reason, um, where the fear stemmed from, but unfortunately people still seem to, to, to believe that. However, there is absolutely no evidence that vaccines can cause autism. Another thing that we have is that there are microchips in vaccines. Could you explain a little bit about what your thoughts are on this? Yeah. Um, so it, this is an interesting one. And I think for me, this highlights the importance of good science communication and responsible journalism at the same time. So I think it, it's really important to know that there are, there are no microchips in vaccines. Um, the ingredients list are available online. Um, you know they're available for anybody to check at any time. But also, more importantly, these vaccines contain ingredients that will be naturally degraded by your body. So your cells will take them up and break them down naturally after a few hours once they've done their job. Um, so no, there is there, there are definitely no va- no microchips in, in vaccines. Okay, so you explained at the beginning how vaccinations work. How do vaccines work in terms of your DNA? Do vaccines alter your DNA? Okay, so, so taking, for example, the COVID-19 vaccines um, as an example here, um, they would not alter your DNA at all. However, I think, again, this stems from the fact that we talk about some of the COVID-19 vaccines having genetic material. Um, and what this means is this vaccine has some of the genetic material called mRNA in this case, from the virus, um, and this is then given to the recipient. So in our cells, we have DNA, which is our genetic material, and this would be inside a cell in a small compartment called the nucleus, and that's where our DNA is stored and protected. Um, The cells would take up the mRNA, so from the vaccine, for example, um, and this would instruct the cell's machinery to produce protein, the viral protein. So in this case, that's the spike protein from the virus, the bit that protrudes out the virus. Um, the spike protein will be produced and that mRNA goes nowhere near the nucleus where our DNA is stored and it's degraded after a few hours once that protein is made and that protein then goes on to activate our immune response. So again, two separate areas. They do not come into contact Oh, okay. Yeah, and th- that makes sense. And of course, we know all about these spikes because that's why it's coronavirus, because it looks like a crown. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it came from. Okay, so one final question, and something that I know that's very important to people who are vegetarians or vegans or for ethical issues. Does the vaccine contain animal products? 
So the three COVID-19 vaccines that have been approved for use in the UK do not contain any animal products at all. So, yeah. And again, as I mentioned, you could, I mean, vaccines predominantly just contain water, the harmless version of the virus, for example, some stabilizers and preservatives to make sure that they can be stored safely and transported, etc. Um, but all of those ingredients um, in the vaccines can either be found in patient information leaflets if you were interested, or you could again go online and have a quick Google and it come up. Shettle, thank you so much. It's been really informative speaking to you and thank you for answering all our questions. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that interview, Gronya. Um, I think we'll leave the science perhaps to Chetal on, on this occasion. Um, and maybe we have a brief discussion about a school's role in vaccinations as a, as a, as a whole. And in the piece, you know, uh, Colvin Atwell, who's a fantastic head teacher in East London, is talking about, well, it's not a school's job to police vaccines. Um, and But if the DfE were to say, you know, a teacher has to have a vaccine in the same way as they have a CRB check. He'd be, he'd have little choice but to mm. but to engage or, or or follow the guidelines that he's given. But Dan, you've been looking at you know what what's in existing place around this. You know what vaccinations are happening in schools already, and how is that dealt with? Yeah, well, I, actually, I'm sure any any teacher listening to this will, will know. You know, and be thinking, well, we actually have vaccinations in school every year. You know, there are there are three common vaccinations given to children. Uh, during their school times, HPV, uh, one called, I think it's pronounced Menaque, or maybe it's M-E-N-A-C-W-Y, and the 3 one booster, which covers three different things. And um, they're given routinely in sort of years eight and nine, I think that's right in saying. And obviously what's been interesting is that during the pandemic, they haven't, oh, quite understandably, been able to take place as usual. And I've actually also been looking at vaccinations this recently, um, but on that side of things. And so... Schools, if they were required to give a COVID-19 vaccination, if there was a sort of legal requirement or it was sort of they tried to roll it in with these other vaccinations as just given at the same time, I don't think it would actually be too much of a, in terms of logistical, logistically speaking, I don't think it would be a huge change for them. I think it would just be the, the immunisation teams and the, the nursing professionals and the local authorities that actually oversee this would be the ones that would do the administration. And it would just be a case of making sure parents understood what their child was receiving and sure the children were there for it or, you know, lined up or however it was administered, as they always did. And maybe on that day you get two shots or maybe there's another day in the calendar. And I suppose if you did have another time in the calendar, that might create a slight timetabling mini problem, but probably nothing that couldn't be solved. But yes, I think actually, whilst the issue of, you know, anti-vaxxers or vaccine refusal, and as the piece does do a very good job of explaining, there's actually many more reasons why people might be wary of vaccines. And I think, you know, right, understandably so. Um, I think we can see that schools probably are well placed to deal with that issue more than they may first think they are, or maybe even think, actually, I feel confident I would know what to do because I've, I encounter this every year in a way. Yeah, there's a teacher in the, uh, an anonymous head teacher in the piece who says if a parent refuses a HP vac, HPV vaccine for their child, the school actually doesn't do anything at the moment about that. I think possibly the difference with the COVID-19 one is is the, the knowledge around COVID-19, the the the, the spread threat, you know, there's, you know, there's this notion that Christ, there's a child in that school who could be the, you know, the, the, the super mm. spreader. And I think you don't sort of get that with the HPV vaccine. Um, I mean, one of the things w when we were discussing this, I was quite surprised because the, the big one I remember as a child is the BCG. Mm. And, you know, everyone has their BCG scar. And I hadn't realised that that wasn't a thing anymore. Yeah, that's right, neither did I. When I looked into it on the NHS website, it's not there anymore. And there are the three I mentioned earlier 
that are now given. And in fact, interestingly, the HPV vaccine was actually given for the first time to boys in the 2019-2020 school year. Previously, it was only given to girls, but they've widened it now to boys as well. So that's actually a sort of a new vaccine on the scene for for half the population, shall we say. Hmm. I was teaching when they first brought in the HPV vaccine and all the girls went out and had their jabs and then came back in again. And the boys were really, really aghast that they, the girls got something that they didn't get. And um, one boy particularly was really aggrieved and was like, but why? Like, what's it even for? And the girl says, because of my cervix. He was like, but what about my cervix? It's like, you don't have a cervix. Don't worry about it. You're definitely. But then, of course, but they get it for because it's a different sort of cancer that you're preventing in boys, obviously, because boys don't have cervixes. And um, it was just it was very amusing. And the poor girls would have to sit and they'd protect their arms because the boys would punch them on the arms on their jab side. That is, that is brutal, isn't it? But yeah, that, that memory of school vaccines and, and, you know, the horror stories the year above would tell you about well, what it's like. And I don't know about your school. We had a medical thing as well in the first year and that was all horror stories around that. And of course, actually, it was completely fine. You know, it was... I got out of my, my TB one at school because I didn't want it to spoil my prom dress. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you actually, Colin, when you're a teacher, and especially that HPV vaccine, were there instances where a child or a, or a parent refused it? And I, I guess more, more complex, where a child wanted it but a parent didn't want them to have a vaccine. Um, so when it was going to be brought in, I was training in a Catholic school, and there was lots of work they had to do about the education of. Um, there's a, there's a lot of fear in some communities about the HPV encouraging underage sex or encouraging premarital sex. And it was educating people about like the realities of cancer and how it's, you know, it, it's an important injection to get, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, mm. it's not going to make your child less virtuous by having HPV vaccine and that kind of thing. So, it, yeah, it, it was quite complicated. They talk about that in the piece, actually, um, quite a few of the heads saying, you know, they're quite willing to be an education point for this. Um, but they also stress that there's a line, isn't there? Where does where does education become advocacy? And I think that's a, a problem not restricted to, to vaccines. It, it's a problem across teaching. It's, you know, where that line is between here's the thing that you need to know about and here's a thing that you should believe in or here's something that I believe in and where you get in danger of the teaching standards is quite it's quite a fine line, one. And two, it's very topical at the moment because you've got a lot of uh, conservative movement towards, you know, we shouldn't have council culture. We should be able to say what we want. And and on the left, well, you shouldn't be able to say X, Y, or Z. And there's this big culture clash at the moment around where that line sits. As a teacher, I mean, that's got to be really difficult. Look at the reaction to the incel piece that we put out. Mm. And people, you know, both real, real extreme, we should definitely know about this. I'm so pleased that I know about this. And I don't think this is my job. I don't see why I should be talking about this as a teacher. And it's, you know, it's really tricky. It's really, really tricky. And Mm. I think you might think that your own personal politics aren't brought into the classroom, but children obviously do pick up on huge number of cues that you give off as a teacher. And I think it is important to think about your, about whether you're educating children and being impartial and presenting both sides. And, you know, how often should both sides be shown um, there was a big row on Twitter this week about the um, 
idea of showing both sides of like the climate change debate and how some people deny it and some people don't. And is that a debate that you don't need to show two sides of and et cetera, et cetera. And what's the best way to do that? And I think when it's a, a topic that people care about a lot, you're always going to get passionate opinions on it. It's really hard, isn't it, to separate yourself from, I mean, we we do it to agree. We, we are neutral on pedagogy at TES and, you know, a, a sign that we're doing a good job is that both sides ha- tend to have a go at us. You know, it's the whole, the old BBC defence, I guess. Um, but it but it is it is possible. But it, where that line sits is something you constantly review. And I wonder how far in a school that line is constantly talked about and you know is made explicit. You know, because you can assume a lot. Why don't why don't they know that they shouldn't have, you know, said it in that way? But actually, has it ever been explicitly discussed? And I think as a, as a journalistic team at TES, you know, how often do we discuss where that line is? And I'm not sure we probably do enough, if I'm honest. And maybe it doesn't happen as much in schools as it should. It's Definitely so definable in my training. It, it is, but I think, yeah, it, it never came up in, in my training. It was just something that... I probably picked up from other teachers in my department who talked about it, but it's really, really hard in some subjects more than others. I imagine in history and definitely in English because of all the literature we do that have strong political opinions and they're they're mostly left-leaning, that it doesn't become a bit preachy and, you know, you should all think these ideas, you know, it's, it's, but does it come up much in maths? Don't know. Well, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because the, 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 where the line is though, it moves over time, doesn't it? Because like right now, people would say, you know, if you say right wing, it's like, well, people think of, you, know, you might think of Donald Trump in America, but you might also think of the conservative government in, you know, in the 70s or something. You know, what, what do you define? What is your mind is right wing? And same with left wing. Is it, is it Corbyn? Is it, is it Ed Miliband? Is it Tony Blair? People would say was, was centered. I mean, so if you say, oh, we mustn't teach left wing, it's like, but which left wing? What, you know, the eye of the beholder of where a left wing idea sits, you know, universal basic incomes. Someone might think that's the most extreme communist idea someone else might think that's a modern progressive centrist policy that the world and it's just sort of to try and sort of set out kind of right we mustn't veer off these parameters it's almost like well the next generation will come in and go god that's not a right-wing idea that's a centrist idea well that's a left-wing idea actually i think that's something that socialist governments should. And it's, it's so difficult because it's like saying we're all we're all told to distrust well win there is movement to distrust experts which on vaccines is very difficult isn't it because like, as you said earlier john if the head teacher shall we say is saying vaccines are good for your children a lot of people are primed to say, well, you're an authority, therefore I shouldn't trust you, therefore yeah. I will not have my child vaccinated. Almost like if you said nothing, they probably would just go along with it. But here endeth the lesson. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly it. And and I think it's going to be tricky for schools as, as this progresses because at the moment they're just concentrating, as, as the intro to, to John's piece says, at the moment they're concentrating on catch-up and with good reasons and you know whether you believe in catch-up or not that's the, that's the push um but down the line this vaccination problem is going to prickle up and it's going to prickle up in all the public sector so there was a there was a note yesterday a leak that suggested you know in the health service having a vaccine was a professional obligation so you know they're moving towards a point where is it part of your professional practice to have a vaccine because you're in a public facing role if that happened in healthcare, you could see it coming into schools as well because of the risk. And then and then you get to a point of vaccine passports and it's a very, very complex uh, ideological challenge for 
us all probably. So this feature is trying to sort of prep us for that and I think it's well worth a read. Okay, so uh, the second feature we're going to look at is an interesting topic for a podcast, Dan, because, you know, we, we can't sort of practice what we preach here, really. No, I would like to start this segment by just saying nothing for a minute, but I think that would be too meta, even for us. They call it dead air, don't they? Yes, they do, and we don't, we don't like that. And um, so what we're talking about here is silence, because the focus on this week in the magazine is about silence. And... You know, it's Carly Page, is the, the freelance journalist, has um, another great writer for us, has talked to experts and tried to sort of just get a sense of when we say silence in school, you know, work in silence or be quiet or even in an example, you know, silence is required. You know, what what does that mean? Can that be achieved? Is that beneficial? You know, is, is some noise good? And almost reaches the point at the end of sort of saying, well, you, you know, what we actually define as silence is not achievable. There's always going to be noise in the background. And for some pupils, that's going to be fine. You know, the, the ticking of a clock or, you know, someone dropping their pen, well, that's not too disruptive. But for some students, perhaps with, you know, ADHD, it says in the piece, that can still be really distracting. And so talking about silence in their context is very different again. And that's the this whole thing, just as we were talking about in the previous discussion about, you know, things mean different things to different people. And it's hard to get that right. But I think overall, I liked it because I think, yes, silence is something that is a sort of term in school, isn't it? But when you start thinking about what does that mean and is that good, probably different by different context. Yeah, I think I found it fascinating that, you know, there's all this research that says, you know, silence is important and then silence itself is never defined. And that study the guy did where he used different types of background noise was fascinating. And I think his conclusion pretty much was as long as the main focus is on the learning, you're probably all right. And it's about how much distraction away from the learning there is. And it reminded me of a Jared Cooney Horvath piece he wrote for us, which said, you know, you have an attention threshold and the longer you're in an environment, the more dips below that threshold. So he gives the example of sitting in a car for, on a commute for an hour and having your radio on. So you'll, you'll gradually turn that up as you continue on your journey because it becomes background noise and it fades out of your, your focus. And he said, then when you get back in your car at the end of the day, you're like, Christ, who's, who's turned this radio up? This is really loud. <laughs> and it always sticks with me, that one, because one, because I now live quite near a motorway. And if I think about the noise of the motorway, I can hear it. But if I don't think about it, I can't. And and it sometimes surprises you because it's like, wow, that's so loud. Like, how are we not hearing that before? And two, because it had a, it, the, the column actually was about ADHD and where their threshold sits very differently to to other children in the class. And I think... This piece makes the same point that for some children, that ticking of the clock, as you said, was is a part of, you know, it's cacophonous. It's like hugely loud in, in, in their senses and really distracting. And I don't know about you two, but working from home, you know, the amount of work I can do is depends what I'm doing. Like sometimes I'm like, if I'm writing and there's a child clicking Lego bricks in the other room, it drives me insane. Whereas if they're all going crazy downstairs, it's less bothered to me and it seems to be really changeable, which is why I like the bit where I think it's Helen Lee's in the piece says, you know, silence is a is a sort of an agreement, it's a pact between you. It's not, it can't be forced. And this is where Gronya tells me that's a utopian vision and you're never gonna, it's never going to happen in schools. I am awful. I'm, I'm, I'm a self 
sabotage when it comes to getting the kids working in silence. So they'll all start working. It'll be lovely and quiet. And you can just hear the nice scratching of their pens on the paper. And you can almost feel like their brains are whirring and it's lovely and quiet. And I'm just stood there and I'm watching them. And I get bored and then I'll say something. I'll do something stupid and they all get distracted. I'm like, no, 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 everyone work again. Work, work. I've ruined it. And it's, it's like when you it's uh, whip your kids up, you make your kids hyperactive before bedtime because you're, you know, <laughs> and your partner just says, why have you done that? Well, I, and I was asked a bit bored, so I thought I'd just throw them around the room a bit. But yeah, it, I'm yeah, the opposite part. I'm saying, but, get them calm and just chill out before bed. But yeah, in the classroom, it's. I think it's lovely when you get them all quiet and they're working. But some kids sit more comfortably comfortably in silence than others. And even where your classroom is in the school, so if you're down a noisy corridor, there's nothing worse than when you're trying to work in silence but the class next door is like watching a film or is doing a loud debate and the noise comes through the rooms and it's even harder to concentrate. And, oh, in the summer when the Year 11s are doing their exams or when, you, when you've got mocks and stuff going on, examinations are going on in the, the school and you have those like silence exams on and... Kids just don't read the signs. Like they just don't, I think maybe because sometimes you have them up so much because you're doing so many mocks and then it's the real exams, et cetera, et cetera. And they just don't, they don't see it. And it's a bit like that background noise, isn't it? It's just background posters up. Yeah. Telling them to be yeah, quiet and they just ignore a, it. Yeah. yeah, a deterrent. And um, shush, shush, like trying desperately to make them be quiet because there's kids doing exams. And, you know, can you remember where you sat in the exam hall to do your... I can. And then you know, if you've got a you know, noisy person next to you, it's so, so awful for you if you're trying to concentrate and there's somebody who's got like an irritating sniff or a hiccup or... Just do you know why I remember those? Because I was talking to my wife about this this week. It's because I, I remember exactly my graphics exam because it was Sydney 2000 Olympics, so you can age me, everybody, listeners land. And we had to draw a logo and my sister would help me loads with the coursework. I'd smash the coursework my sister's really artistic. And it was down to me in the exam. And I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. It's the Sydney Olympics. I'll draw a kangaroo. And I can see myself because I was on the stage because I was always at the stage because I was at the back of the hall because I'm S as my surname. So I'm on the front and I look left and I look right. And I'm thinking, I don't know how to draw a kangaroo's hands. I don't know what they look like. So I drew the kangaroo with boxing gloves in the logo for, for, for the Sydney Olympics. That's really good. <laughs> and I got a D for that exam. So I, I, I remember vividly. I got a B overall. It's all right because my sister smashed the coursework, which is a lesson on coursework. This is not a good story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, I, but I can remember sitting on that stage just going red because I always go red thinking, this doesn't look like a kangaroo. And now I've put these big red boxing gloves on that just look like squelled hands. Yeah, I thought that was a moment of inspiration, but... Obviously not. It was awful. But back to silence. I but, mean, it's, but it's funny you said, because examples growing up, I, not at school, but university, I was a W, obviously I'm a W, and I ended up in a sort of fluke where the, the layout meant I was the very last person. So I was back at the front, so I was the very first person. Do you know what I mean? I was look, looking at the wall, which I'd never had before. I was always at school, I was at the back looking at everyone, which I kind of liked, I think. And then at university, I was right at the front, you know, 300, 400 people behind me, and I felt I felt very um, exposed because I couldn't. Everyone was could look at me, but I couldn't look at anyone. But it was very silent. Didn't one of you two do a piece about sitting at the back or sitting at the middle or sitting at the yeah, front? Yeah, yeah, we did it for seating plans. That's right. Yeah, and sitting at the front, you'll get you. Your natural instinct is, "What the hell is going on behind me?" You know, it's, it's really unnerving. 
and we've come a long way from silence, haven't we? I've just realised, but you know, this is this is just where we go with it. But it all goes back to the fact I think that silence should be interpreted in different ways, in the sense that um, you know it's not simple. You know, just as where you sit in a classroom or sitting in an exam hall changes your perception of that exam. How science silence is achieved in a classroom seems to be really important as well. And, you know, in some parts of the world, silence is this peaceful, reflective. Uh, freeing experience and some places it's completely you know a a very um what's the word i'm looking for a restrictive Mm -hmm. oppressive that's the word dan yeah it's an oppressive thing and i think that's a again a bit like the vaccine debate and 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 the wider political debate where you how you achieve silence or or near silence because there's clearly benefits in certain tasks we're not saying silence is beneficial for all tasks but short but certainly benef- uh, silence is beneficial for some tasks how you achieve that silence and and the, it seems to be you know really important i think carly teases that point out really nicely from from the research well isn't there a point i think as well like children in a way should it sounds a bit maybe it sounds a bit old fashioned but it's almost like there should be an element of it, it should be learning to be in silence and enjoy silence or being comfortable in silence and not need endless noise and distraction. And maybe that's something that as you get older, you know, I was, I've always loved listening to music, but I find myself as I get older, my sort of, sometimes I'm quite happy to have nothing on in the background and just, I don't need it anymore. And I think that's probably a slight age thing, but I think as well, like a quiet lesson and time to just sit and think and study is as good as a loud, you know, collaborative, everyone chat ideas, which is also great. You know, both have their place. And at work, we talk about how oh, collaboration is really important and, you know, problem solving, but also being able to just sit quietly and work for an hour solid or 40 minutes yeah. is also a skill, isn't it? And one that maybe that little moments of silence in school helps with that. Do you know what I'd love to see? A comparison of how children can sit in silence who come from faith schools who are used to sitting in religious services and being made to be silent and compare it to children who aren't used to it. Mm. So I think being made to sit in silence in church as a kid has taught me how to be sit, how to sit in silence as an adult. Well, if you have any views on that, listeners, please tweet us. Okay, so we're going to quickly go to feature three, um, and this is by Heidi Drake, Gronia. Yes, lovely Heidi Drake, who actually went to the school opposite me, but we went there at very different times. She wasn't there when I was there, but... It's a fun fact, and her sister went to my school. This wasn't one of the people you bullied at school? I didn't bully anybody at school. <laughs> Actually, I've got to come back because I've been told I need to make some corrections. So I'll, I'll get on with this. So my pick up this week is Heidi Drake's growth mindset column on the feedback she received as a trainee teacher. So Heidi describes a lesson where she was observed as a PGC student and it followed her school behaviour policy in the lesson, only to be pulled up by it on her by her mentor from her training college saying that she shouldn't have followed the school behaviour policy because the behaviour policy was wrong. Now, we have to read the piece to find out exactly what it was that Heidi did that was so terrible that the PGC student um, tutors pulled her up on it. But the idea that not all feedback is equal is the one that I took away from this piece, that, you know, you can hear advice from somebody and you can listen to it. And it's always worth listening to people's advice if they've taken the time to give it to you. But it doesn't mean you need to take it. And I think that's a a really important thing to keep in mind, especially when you're a trainee teacher, but actually in every stage of your teaching career. I think it's a good lesson for life, really. I mean, I always triangulate and it annoys people horrendously. So I hear something from someone and I go, "Mm, okay, go to somebody else. What do you think? And then go to a third person and, and, you know, get this Venn diagram. Okay, where's the crossover? Where's the essential? Everyone agrees that this bit's a good idea but they have some different ideas about other stuff. And I think, 
you know, in a school, there is a line that says the boss is the boss. At the end of the day, whoever's in charge in a school is in charge, right? You, you, you know, unless it's breaking the law or, or safeguarding risk or, you know, something of that like, you have to do basically what you're told. Um, you know, it might not be the school for you as a result of that. But I think, you know, also the whole observation, you know, this is why peer observation is quite good, I think. And this is why I think you wrote this piece a couple of weeks ago, Gronje, uh, about peer observation. And I think that's where it comes into its own because you can try, it's a natural triangulation. It's a natural way of saying, okay, what do different people think of this lesson? Where where does everyone agree it's good? And where does everyone agree it's bad? And what then is left probably is some sort of opinion-based you know, it's in the realm of opinion that is quite scattered, whereas actually this seems to be a truth at the extremes wherever, where the agreement happens. And it's why I think it's a bit dangerous when you have one, you know, the all-seeing observer, if you like. Well, have you, have you seen Chernobyl? Yeah. I haven't. It's in the is in the is in the show. Yeah, not, not have the you place. been there. No, no, I've not been there because that that in a way is all about that. It's obviously I'm extrapolating quite a lot in it, but um, you know they kind of show that the incident was caused because the person in charge just said do this, and they thought that's not right, but they were told you've got to do it, and so they did it, and a nuclear meltdown. And that's an extreme example, but it is that thing of sometimes you should stop and listen to feedback and think no. You know, just because yeah. you're a senior to me, I don't, I don't agree. But obviously, it's very difficult when that happens, and it's in a hierarchy where you're kind of meant to listen to that person, like in a nuclear power plant. Um, so, yeah, I think. Pardon. Charge of the light brigade. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, yes, that's the military, is. where it's even more, even yeah. more like you know, you, you do not have the ability to, you know, if you go against your superior officer, it's almost like there is no recourse for that whatsoever, is there? Or at least that's my understanding of the military in that world. So. Yeah, we've sort of gone off a little bit from teaching here, but um, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? That thing of people, someone gives you feedback, says you should have done this. And it's like, well, no, you're wrong. And that's what I thought about the piece. It's like she she follows her school policy and is told she was wrong to do that. And I don't I don't, I don't see why that seems very unfair to me. It seems like the, the, that conversation should have been between them, the school and the supervisor or whatever it should have been. But to blame the teacher for following the rules, very very difficult. It should and have also, been. Also, how can somebody who's not who who doesn't even work at the school be in a better place to describe what the school? behaviour policy should be. Mm. I mean, it's the very idea of that is absolutely ridiculous. Unless it, like you said, unless it's a safeguarding risk, unless they're actually breaking the law, the school's entitled to set whatever behaviour rules they want. And, you know, it's not, it, it, somebody can't come in and say, well, that, that behaviour was wrong and expect it to be overridden just on their say-so. I think it's, that's the thing. And I think I'd, like, I'd be interested to hear of people's ideas actually about the best way of dealing in that with that situation. You know, if you're in a school with a, a single all-seeing observer or if you've had the same experience of Heidi as Heidi when you read the piece you get in touch and tell us how you sh how you would deal with that situation and you know what are the best strategies to to get over that because I think that's the next step we go to is you know how do we deal with this situation speaking of feedback I've been told I need to um correct some things from last week apparently I didn't represent what I was like at school accurately who's told you this uh, my friend Holly who no. is lovely and she's She's going to train to be a teacher and she listens to this podcast. And I went to school with Holly and um, she she reminded me of some stories that she thinks that I should share. That, that are in in your in your favour or in your to your detriment? To my detriment. I so, don't think we, I, I'm not sure whether we should spoil the myth of Gwanya Hallahan. <laughs> do you not want to hear them? Do no, one. Do. do one. Do one story. 
Um, and we'll judge you on that base in a single all-seeing observation. <laughs> so I was the sort of child who really wanted to be a rebel. So I bunked off a lot. I spent a lot of time. I worked out on a Friday. You could just walk out of school in, uh, early at lunchtime and nobody really noticed. And I, I missed a lot of school. But I would... I was obviously just a massive geek and I would go to the library and I would read short stories and do my art coursework. So you bumped off to do work. That I don't even know what to make of that, do you, Dan? Well, is that even bunking off? I mean, did you have a lesson that you <laughs> missed as a result? Yeah, yeah, I missed, I used to miss um, business. I didn't like business studies oh, very right. much. I bunked business studies and graphics. I was really bad at graphics. So I'd miss graphics and business studies. But on the day I had graphics, I also had drama which I loved so I'd miss graphics in the morning come in late and then stay because I had drama after school because I did an extra GCSE after school but also I'm, I'm not so what is this story telling us about you that we didn't know before that I thought you were a Kino Bino at school but you know yeah but she wanted to know. make sure that I put across the fact that I did bunk off a lot and I did get into a lot of trouble at oh, school okay. oh, oh so you got into trouble well that's more interesting because it sounds like this was just like you know more work I was wondering what's the worst punishment you got at school what's the most what's the most severe sa- sanction you two got I, was, I had one after school I was a good boy yeah I had a couple of detentions for skipping I skipped football well, Wednesday afternoon activities I think it was I skipped because it was snowing and I didn't want to do it and I, me and our friend we we just didn't go and we got caught by a PE teacher and he gave us um, a couple of detentions because of that um, which I, I wasn't very proud of that and I didn't tell my parents I just Pretend I had after school club, which is why I was back <laughs> late. Um, you got what? I got suspended, like, temporary excluded a couple of times and I was banned from school trips. Oh, wow. See, you're sounding a little bit like a pain in the ass. So now you are a real rebel. What were you suspended for? Can we ask? I was suspended for bringing alcohol on a school trip, which also got me banned from school trips, smoking and... I swore a teacher. This is a whole podcast worth of material. Yeah, I was going to say we've got like a minute left and I feel like we've left it on a cliffhanger. Well, we'll pick this up. But also I should say that I there's, an, there's a future episode of My Best Teacher coming up with a, with a national treasure, someone who everyone knows and loves, who was suspended at school for the most, for a very particularly heinous crime, you know, in the, in the realm of bit why I've suspended, but bounces back um, and becomes head girl and goes on to become a national treasure, which... Shows that being suspended is not always, you know, the worst thing. And actually, maybe it sometimes is a good straight and narrow guide. Obviously, for you, Gronier, it was as well. I feel like I started this podcast by praising Gronier, and I feel we have to end it by making clear that I'm really sorry to her teachers. And I think we should leave it there. So tune in next week and um, hopefully no more revelations from Gronier. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.